This episode of the Wiffle League Podcast was recorded on Tuesday, April 3rd, 2018. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Whipple League podcast. I am your host, Chris Lazzarini, joined in studio as always by the stats coordinator, Josh Wittenberg. Josh, how are you doing tonight? Doing great. How are you doing? Not too bad. Also joined by Justin Filardo, our content producer. Justin, how's it going? Good. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. And lastly, uh, but not leastly, Jason Hillenbrand, our audio video overlord. Jason, how's it going? Hey, y'all. <laughs> that was actually a great introduction. You, I think we did it. I think so. So we have, uh, first, thing, first things first is the acknowledgement that I am the host tonight with Rich Nassif officially retiring from the Wiffle League. Now, we'll touch on that and what it means to fill the league more often, but first, I just want to say how much I appreciate the opportunity to be the full-time host of this podcast and hope that you all are on board with this transition and we wish... Wish rest, wow, we wish Rich the best in his future endeavors. Moving on, the 2018 banquet is the last news item that we had in this league. So we have uh, we had a new venue. We had uh, Josh was still winning. So uh, what you did uh, probably notice on that night was we also had Dave Leap on the red carpet as you entered. The room. So uh, I'm going to tease a few audio clips from the Dave Leap red carpet video. The full video will get the release after this podcast, so make sure you check out the Facebook group uh, or I'm sure the email chain to see the full video. But in the meantime, we have a few clips to tease it. So uh, the first one, I believe, is kind of a welcome to the event. And speaking of that former uh, podcast host, Rich, we have uh, a little bit of a snippet of Dave interviewing uh, the Nassif family as in Sarah and Rich. So Jason, if you have that ready to go. Welcome to the Whipple Banquet. Thank you. The 11th annual one. Can we get some sound too? Maybe a play-by-play for us. I'm going to ask you intelligent questions. Peter Millar, two-piece. Uh, bought it for my rehearsal dinner two years ago. I mean, somebody say something. Uh... Unless this is going live with sound. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, I was hoping for just the MP3s. I wasn't sure. I didn't know we were going the full video. Uh, but basically, that was a welcome to, uh, to Sarah and Rich. And a, a, a quick question of what was he wearing. Uh, so he walked through his outfit for that night. So uh, what's going to look good is how many uh, comments are made and, and getting everyone's outfit. I know, Josh, you had a pretty memorable outfit from the banquet. So uh, it definitely made the super cut. So speaking of that banquet... Um, you know, obviously, it was, I think it went well. I think everyone had a good time. Pretty decent turnout. Um, it was a bit of a, a hazy night for me. I don't have all the memories intact. But uh, we also have, uh, I forgot to mention, we have Russ Anderson in studio on this podcast, a special guest. I apologize for forgetting to introduce you until now. But Russ, how, what were your thoughts on the banquet? I had a blast. That was fantastic. Venue change, um, video, everything went smoothly. My date, Paul, was looking stunning as always. As always. Yeah, he's definitely featured on the uh, what, what Are You Wearing Tonight. Uh, he had a nice drop in there, so look forward to that when you see the full video. Josh, what were your thoughts on the banquet? 
I really liked it. I, I'm a big fan of food, so it was great that I could eat a little bit during the, the show. Maybe uh, I'm excited to see what comes <laughs> next year, really. So, uh, Yeah, so again, the new venue was probably the big, well, obviously the biggest change and definitely had an impact on it. So uh, Jason, do I dare ask for the, uh, the comments on some of the new venue from Schroeder, uh, the Schroeder family, or are we skipping that? Yeah, we'll, we'll give it a try. We'll see what happens here. Sounds good. Can't wait. Oh. So you don't have the MP3s that I sent over? I think Steve's saying, like, he's really excited to talk to Dave and hold his hand, and Aaron's excited for another baby, and she's going to eat a lot to make sure that the baby comes out fully fed and with a full head of hair. That's funny you say that, Josh, because I believe, to your point earlier, she did say that she just wanted to eat dinner. <laughs> see, that's what happened. I, I know. Pregnant lady's always hungry. That uh, right. definitely was the, the, the last comment, was excited to eat dinner. So uh, we had food at the banquet, which we were able to indulge in. Um, I don't know why I wrote this down, but you, wrote, you, you walked downstairs as opposed to upstairs. I'm not sure if anybody cared about that. Uh, we definitely had a nice... No, nobody cared. You know, no one cared? <laughs> Always easier to go downstairs. It was nice to have that kind of like a, like a prom entry. You know, walk downstairs, everyone looks at you. We had the red carpet out there. Uh, definitely a nicer bathroom. I'm sure we all appreciated that. Uh, and we had a, a frickin' stage that was built for the event, which I thought turned out pretty well. Any other additional thoughts on the venue? Anything that people, you, you heard rumblings about? I heard some people complaining that the TV was a little small, so I think we're going to try to make that a little bit better for the draft this year. You going to buy a new one and bring it? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, you already did. Do we want to, is this a spoiler alert? Uh, no, you'll, you'll just have to see at the at the draft. Uh -huh. All right, so my guess is we're not going to cut to an audio clip of the next, <laughs> the next teaser. No, I think we're good. We're good on that. Are, are you going MP3 with this one? Nope. I, I think we shouldn't I'm even broke. try anything anymore. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> I mean, Josh's commentary is good. He can try. Uh... Now, so uh, it was just a quick teaser of uh, some people's comments on uh, the awards, who was nominated, and who they think are going to win. Uh, but we did have a full array of awards that were handed out. Uh, some surprises this year. We had Russ winning Defensive Player of the Year. Can you speak to what it felt for you to mean that, especially considering the reigning defensive player for the league is next to you? I feel like anytime it's not Josh winning Defensive Player of the Year, it's JF consciously not choosing Josh as the Defensive Player of the Year. <laughs> I think you're wrong. I feel, and I, I'm not privy to all the conversations that Josh has with Justin about the stats, but I, I feel confident that after it was announced, Josh had a handful of reasons as to why he was actually maybe the better choice for Defensive Player of the Year. No, ready I, to ready at the ready. Oh no, I don't think so. <laughs> so to to give I mean, you, we're just going on defensive. Metrics, Josh, statistically, was a more efficient. Explain fielder. how, though. But tell me how. Based on the defensive stats. That, yeah, because that of a percentage of maybe he had put, an easier yeah. play to make than you did. So that would maybe skew the percentages. So the reason why I chose you, and I'm not going to go into great, great detail, but you... I mean, overall, I'd like to hear it all the way. But you have, we got plenty of content coming here. So, but briefly, I will say maybe Josh. I mean, obviously, Josh is a superior off our defensive player, but the opportunities that he had versus you, and you actually made 
the the plays. Josh, I think only had one error, but I I want to say you did as well. But sometimes it's more opportunity. That's what this award can be. Laz won it, I believe, in 2014 with uh, a similar in a similar fashion in which he made several outstanding plays where maybe uh, Josh had a couple of errors and just didn't have the opportunities that he did. It's pretty, it is pretty amazing to watch the highlight video at the banquet and to see all the, the great things that happened over the course of the season and to be recognized as somebody who you know, also does a nice job in the field. So it was a good feeling. Yeah, and just to well, your point, uh, over the course of the 10-year career of the defensive, defensive player of the year, Brian won in 08, JF won in 11, I did win in 14, and now you've won in 17. The rest have all gone to Josh. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, a, it's his award for us to try to steal once in a while. So I still give it to Josh occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think my favorite thing about that award was I had written a, a speech in anticipation of prevailing over Russ and like <laughs> feeling bad because he had expressed disappointment the previous year for not winning it and you know doing a tremendous job in the field in 2016 and so in the event that I did win I felt that I needed to tell him how great that I think he is and how great of a life he has and even if he doesn't win defensive player you're like he can still go home with his head held high and then after he read the speech that I wrote about him at the after party, he was telling me that he initially was planning on going up there and just ripping Shitting me to shreds. <laughs> so That's I 100% true. I almost, <laughs> I almost wish that you had a speech that you could have given, you know, just making fun of me, and then I could have gone up there and read that speech, and it would have been even funnier. But I think it was still pretty funny. Yeah, that was fun. That worked out. So uh, we had the most improved player, I think, was a relatively unanimous choice for Mike Satry. Uh, he played out of his mind last year. I want to say he was, was number one or number two in batting average over the regular season. Uh, really strong season from Mike. And uh, I don't think that was ever in doubt. No, as far as, as his offensive numbers, he, was the, he had the third highest batting average last year across both of the regular season and the postseason he almost batted 400 at 396 8 as the fourth decimal place but i think he just showed such tremendous improvement over every other year that he's ever had at the plate and it wasn't kind of a richness seif situation where he does really great one year and then he struggles and then he has another really great year where you know mike sagery was pretty consistently around the 250 300 hitter and then he just went up to about a 400 hitter out of nowhere so i think he was just getting that dad bod ready for uh for his son now so many new dads in the league so many new dads uh so again offensive player of the year another another category dominated by josh and he does win over justin and jason uh, i don't think that was ever quite in doubt but uh jason did have a crazy year though offensively there was a lot of big numbers coming from that uh, tortugas team but yeah i again i think it was probably coming down to my guess is ops and on base uh you probably still led pretty handily is that right yes or ops every... and on base and slugging i was um pretty yeah, you distance were... from anybody else yeah. but if it was based on rbis jf would have won with 28 across the regular season and the postseason last year, which has to be a record. So I had a lot of help from my friends. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the number of runs that 
uh, an RBI scored last year. 152 RBIs calculated in the league. JF almost accounted for 20% of those by himself in a 16-person league. That's pretty staggering. Yeah. And he didn't win. And still not enough. Still uh, not enough. Just give Josh another speech. I will say a quick anecdote. Uh, 2016, Josh won Offensive Player of the Year with four RBIs. He had three home runs. Brian Boyson, conversely, had 15 RBIs that year. And as I said, Josh won the award. Laz had 10 RBIs that year and didn't even get a sniff of the nomination. That'll happen. <laughs> it's pretty amazing that I'm looking over Josh's shoulder at his 2016 statistics. <laughs> he he batted 528 with three homers and only had four RBI. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. That's a tough year. It was a rough year for the storm. <laughs> That's what happens when you bat leadoff. You always get brought in. I scored 11 runs. I just didn't have any RBIs. That's pretty funny. So uh, so moving on, we had uh, Pitcher of the Year, which I am happy to have been crowned for the first time in a long time. Uh, it's the one that every year, I'm sure, Russ, you probably feel the same way. If you could win one award a year, you'd rather win that award than anything else. Is that fair? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think winning any award pretty pretty special because as you know as you just said it doesn't happen all the time as much as you want it to or you think you're deserving um you know one person can have a stellar year and sneak up and deservedly win the award so you know anytime you can you can walk out of the banquet with by the way the trophy is phenomenal (laughs) um you can walk out with a trophy is a pretty cool thing but well to your point i don't think if you asked around I don't think you would find many different answers besides your name as the pitch, the best pitcher in the, in the league. I think it would be probably, if not unanimous, as close as you can get to it, yet you have not won the award since 2011. Since moving to Chestnut, <laughs> I have not won the award. So, so without I trees as a defender. that people think that, but um, I don't know. Especially, you know, we might get to it a little bit later when we get to the, the big board, but, um, you know, the, the pitching numbers this year were relatively clustered Mm -hmm. together um you were clearly the the best pitcher last year but um there were a lot of people who were you know right right there um which which was an interesting maybe yearly anomaly but i would disagree in saying that laz was clearly the best pitcher only because i had to kind of scour through the statistics if you look at your runs against which is essentially an era uh, Russ had a lower runs against, but Laz had a lower whip. So what we did to make sure that the best pitcher was crowned pitcher of the year is I went and watched every single inning that both of you pitched, and I calculated out whether or not the runs that were scored against you were earned runs or unearned runs, and we got an a an actual ERA for the top four pitching nominees last year. So although some of the stats may disagree with the winner, when you go even more into detail to find out ERA or anything like that, it did prove that Laz uh, was let down by his team's errors <laughs> more than Russ was. Which so. I know just as RBI can't account for an offensive player's value, wins does not accurately reflect a, a pitcher's value, but Laz did, I think, tie an all-time record with five wins um, in a season, mm-hmm. and his strikeout-to-walk ratio was uh, superior 
to mind for sure. Yeah, just looking at Ks per game, walks per game, home runs. Uh, no, that's kind of in whip too, but right. It, it wasn't. I felt like I was uh, at that level last year for some reason. Last year felt different than previous years as far as my presence on the mound. It helps having a fantastic defensive team. Aside from some of the the errors that may have led to a few runs, it still means you have Jason, Justin, and Mike are all plus defenders at their position. So that definitely makes my job easier too. It also helps when your team scores a lot of runs and is very good at the plate. You don't have as much pressure when you're pitching that, oh, I need to keep this team to only one run or two runs because we're not going to score. You know, If you have confidence that your team's going to score four, five, six runs a game, then you really have confidence to challenge the hitters. You don't have to kind of nip at the corners. You can kind of go right at them. For sure. But something that Russ was saying earlier that, you know, he may not necessarily be the best pitcher because, you know, some other guys are coming up, Brandon and Laz, stuff like that. If you look at Pitcher of the Year nominee, Russ has been in the league since 2006, and he was not nominated for Pitcher of the Year in 2009. But besides that, he has been nominated Nor every year. Oh, I'm sorry, 2015 too. Wow. <laughs> I guess not every that year. sings a little? So yeah, you have... <laughs> yeah, but didn't you win the Wiffle Series that year? I... We did, yeah. yeah so I Tourists, would, I would rather not win any award and win the Wiffle Series. So yeah. So looking at Pitcher of the Year, uh, you're still leading with four uh, overall winners, and then there are four of us. That's not right. Three of us tied at two. Jeff Hansman has won two. I have won two, and Mike Satry has won two. So how much can the award actually mean? <laughs> Uh, next award, play of the year. I don't remember the nominees, but they were all fantastic, and Dave definitely earned the victory in that category. Uh, like I said, without seeing him in front of me, I don't really know, but I know that all of them were very, very good plays, except for Brian's lefty home run, which I think is trash. But besides that, I love well, The other play was Brandon getting the out at first and then hitting the strike zone, which, which was a phenomenal was play. Fantastic. Yeah. So Again, to, to Russ's point, the highlight video is just littered with so many high-quality plays. I know that it's a kind of a shame that the robbed home run is kind of a fad that we're falling out of love with because every time it happens, I'm still amazed by it. And I think all of those are the hardest plays I'd make. I remember the first time I saw Josh rob Laz, I, Wasn't I, was, I screenshotted it on my phone so I could have it. And I, JF is going, go, good old ball. Oh! <laughs> and now that play is made like twice a series. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. For sure. Uh, if we had a, a stronger fence, I don't think Brandon would do it as often, but uh, it's still some fantastic effort. So speaking of Brandon, uh, he did get a chance to redeem himself with the postseason MVP. Uh, he really he played well. Uh, for someone who hadn't been in a Wiffle Series yet, no, that's not true. He's, he won the last two in a row. Back, so... Uh, either way, he's uh, he definitely showed that he can handle the pressure, and I thought he was the best player on the team. Uh, it's impressive. Yeah. It's too bad he's never going to be a captain. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll touch on captains later in a full segment where we break down not only the players that are going to be captains, but also their uh, their team names and even some of their logos, as I have images of their hats littered across my outline that we'll dig into. Uh, we did have our first annual, so inaugural sportsmanship award that combined two previous awards, uh, the heart and hustle and the sportsmanship, sportsmanship. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Russ, you were again nominated as well as Brian Boyson, which baffles me, but Justin Florida was the winner <laughs> in that one. Um, so I, I think well-deserved to the commissioner to win that inaugural award. Yeah, I really didn't think, uh, that 
Okay. I'm, obviously, I was uh, very much against it. I think we did it. <laughs> I don't mean to correct you, Les, but it actually was kind of the same process as we had done in, in previous years. We talked about potentially coming up with kind of a new format for the award, but uh, I really didn't think, even though I knew I was going to win, it was, it was cool winning this award. I, it actually meant a lot. As it should. I think we yeah. should all strive to be nominated on that list. And I Chosen hope that, by your peers. I hope that we can eventually get rid of that list or that award just because we're all, <laughs> uh, we're all so sportsmanship-y that it just becomes irrelevant. Carly's going to win every year. If, if her... If she is the way that she is on email, she's probably going to win this award every year. That makes sense. I will say when I, was, out of it. when I was updating the stats today, I already made one click entry into uh, the winner of a 2018 award, the uh, Rookie of the Year. So Nice. It's been a while since we've had one of those. Luke, uh, Luke didn't win that one either. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be so bad. <laughs> Any other thoughts on the awards, the banquet, or anything before we move on to some important off-season news that we have to cover? I just wish the oh, highlight yeah. video was a little bit longer. This is going to transition well into our next topic, but uh, how do we feel about Rich? He kind of had the ball on the tee there, and uh, with his Lifetime Achievement Award, like he could have just completely drop the mic. And I, His speech was good, but it wasn't prepared. He was kind of just talking off the top of his head. But how do we feel about the way that he revealed that he was moving? Just real quick. I was I was surprised and shocked. I didn't know yeah, that was, was coming, yeah, exactly. which was one thing. So I think I knew, Josh knew. Uh, I don't know if anyone else did, but I was like really anticipating that moment. And you know, he did an all right job, but you know, I guess uh, maybe could have been a little bit more. I think that we've just oomph. we've had some really great lifetime achievement speeches recently, especially with Russ. And then with JF, especially with Russ, that well, he's an English teacher, so the fact that he can, you know, prov- right. create a great speech and deliver it is not unexpected. Sure. But and then JF with you know the commissioner, the founder of the league, he brought you know those two really elevated the the prestige of the award and the anticipation and the excitement that comes around the last speech of the night and. And I think JF did a good job of saying that Rich's speech was good or it was all right because, you know, C, C minus, yeah. You know, it's a passing grade, but I left with a a feeling of not quite being satisfied. Like, I wanted more, and maybe Rich can come back next year and introduce the new Lifetime Achievement Award and give it a little bit better go than, than this past season. It wasn't as bad as Brian's, but it was close. <laughs> I thought Brian's was awesome. That was He wrote the whole thing leading up to his speech, yeah. sitting at his table. At the banquet. I mean, that is super impressive because it took me months. I mean, I had the <laughs> advantage of knowing it was going to be me, how I wanted to prepare it. And so I give Brian a lot of credit, actually. So it's not like Brian didn't know it was going to be him. There was a video that was played in, like, September. No, I agree. I'm saying that I used as much time as I could, but I think it's really impressive that he was able to do it just beforehand. I'm not saying it's not impressive. I'm just saying, like, you you have this 
expectation of, you know, this is going to be the best speech of the night. This is going to be the funny one, a little bit of heartfelt in there, and, like, just it's going to make you feel happy. And, I don't know, some, some people made me feel like they could make me more happy. Comment from Steve Andrews, or sorry, Andrew Stevens on the <laughs> Facebook Live. He said, this is why people kill themselves, because friends of theirs are criticizing them on the internet. So. Yeah, I'm not sure what you felt, Russ. I didn't have Steve any... Steve would know. I, yeah. I didn't have any... Uh, or Andrew would. <laughs> Andrews. I didn't have a strong opinion on his speech. I wasn't disappointed. I was sad that he was leaving the league, but the speech... Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's the thing, is that it wasn't memorable enough for me, but I didn't have any reaction one way or another. I thought it was... The news was the bomb. The speech then became irrelevant. And I think there's there's something to be said for you know speaking from the heart, and sometimes when it's so prepared, it seems disingenuous which I don't think Rich's was in the least. Um, I think actually kind of the way that, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I think the question maybe that I meant to, the way I meant to phrase this was, should he have told everyone at the very end of the speech as he did, or should he have said it up front? You as an as a English teacher, Russ, would you have an input? Was, it was a good Shyamalan twist. Yeah. It worked out well. <laughs> it kind of was. Yeah, I, I like the way that he organized it. Okay. You know, because... If it was said at the beginning, I almost would not have been paying attention to Correct. what had come after. Um, yeah, it, and that that was kind of his mic drop, and yeah, you know, for as, for I as mean, much. Uh, kudos to him for not getting teary. No cry. I would have been weeping if I was doing that on stage. I would have yeah. definitely not been able to finish that speech. Well, Except yeah, but don't you think that it almost makes it seem like he doesn't care about the Wiffle League as much without, you know, that type of emotion? I would think no. that was the case if I hadn't seen his emails over the last two weeks. The fact that he's still <laughs> engaging in email when <laughs> he is completely out of the league, halfway across the country with a new job, new house, you know, new family situation, and he still, you know, musters up the energy to write unsubscribe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean for this to be such a thing, so I don't. Uh, we can. Well, then we stick to being a content producer. On. I know. Sorry, I was just chiming in. No, but speaking of Rich, who isn't in the league, that did leave the council with an interesting uh, conundrum, which was how do we go about replacing him? So, uh, a lot of conversation was had. A lot of a lot of candidates were put out there. Interviews were done, and at the end of the day, a tryout even occurred uh, with some filming of that. So, uh, it was, I guess, my privilege to announce to all 18 people listening that uh, Carly Korich is going to be the new and 16th member of the Wiffle League, joining us in time for the draft happening in uh, a few short days. So uh, I'm not sure if she has subscribed to this on iTunes yet, but if not, uh, hopefully she'll hear this at some point. But I know that I can speak only for myself as of right now by saying that I am wildly excited that she is joining. I think it does a lot for... Uh, the competition in the league as a fan who's been here f from almost from the beginning and how many games she's attended, the attitude that she brings, the energy, and just the overall um, excitement. I think that I just, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. No, no disrespect to Rich and the commitment that he gave to the league, his performances over the years, uh, including, a, a, I believe, a Rookie of the Year win over you, Josh, uh, back in 2006 or seven, whenever that was. Well-deserved. Obviously. Uh, so no no uh, no shame towards Rich, but I am looking forward to some new blood in the league, and I think it's going to be good for everybody. Russ, what was your first thought about hearing Carly as the official announcement to, to replace Rich? 
I mean, I'm, I was super excited. Um, if anybody listened to the, the council tape, I know that there are a few people who did. Um, <laughs> I didn't even you know, listen I to was that. somebody who was uh, a Carly supporter, um, you know, for a long time, not just from her athletic pedigree, but from a personality perspective. And, uh, you know, I think, I think she's going to be a great, a great fit in the league. And, um, it's kind of a, a shot in the arm that I think, um, the league could use at this point. What is that athletic pedigree? Do you know about her history at all, Josh? I do. Yes. Do you want to share at all what that is? I mean, I I don't I can't get into specifics, but I know that she she played softball at Augustana in Rock Island, Illinois, or if that's where it's located. And I believe right. that she holds the record, uh, the career record for most home runs hit, which I think is twenty four. JF, it is thirty one. Thirty one. Okay, it's part of the big board. Well, the big board was not revealed yet, so it's not public. I haven't read it. I did a little research on Carly as well. She is also maybe the more important stat um, for her athletic pedigree. She is second all time in Augustana softball history in hit by pitch. Ooh, she's been hit twelve times, which is second all time, which doesn't noteworthy. Doesn't seem overly important, but it is still a feat nonetheless. Noteworthy. I believe in discussing with with JF that she she transitioned from third base to catcher and succeeded and just showed uh, defensive improvement from her freshman year to her senior year. So if if you do happen to get on her team this year and you know she struggles maybe initially defensively, I don't think that that you should be too worried because she's obviously shown the ability to kind of shore it up over time and and turn what is maybe a perceived weakness into a strength. I thought you were going to say next year we add a catcher position. (laughs) No, I don't think that (laughs) anybody has interest in putting the gear on for wiffle ball. I wouldn't say nobody has interest in that. (laughs) Most sane people, how about? Uh, So we won't go much more into the scouting report on Carly. We will wait until we dig into that big board uh, that Russ has prepared for us, which I did forget to tease at the top of this podcast, but I will now. We have a few more things to discuss before we go into the draft in more detail, but for those of you eagerly listening and sick of my voice, uh, we do have Russ's big board breakdown coming very soon. On top of the addition of Carly to the league, we had some rules discussions. I can't imagine that people have too much interest in hearing more about this after the 200 emails that have already come through over the last couple of weeks. But we do have a couple of things that have come up, one of which was a batter's box. Uh, I'm looking at you, Josh, because this is basically my rule that I wanted and because of you. How do you feel about being a little bit restricted as far as where you can be standing when you make contact with the ball? I don't mind. The The reason why I typically stand where I stand is because that's where there's grass and uh, that's why I've always been a big proponent for a stance mat because then I can just stand like a normal human and I don't have to like put one foot like on the little piece of grass and then have one foot starting uh, behind me and then step in. But if you actually do look at the dimensions of the batter's box, I think you're going to be disappointed when you realize that I was significantly within the batter's box throughout my entire career in Wiffle, so you're not going to see much difference from where I'm standing based on the fact that there's a batter's box because I believe it's going to extend two feet, three inches in front of the plate, whereas my foot 
was never more than like six inches in front of the plate, my, my stride foot. So yeah, I, I'm going to be allowed to stand even farther forward. Yeah, I think that might actually be true when I built out the field diagram with accurate proportions. If it's centered on the plate, the plate's 17 inches, six feet, it goes forward pretty far. So um, we might have to revisit the overall dimensions, but... <laughs> What can we do to limit Josh? <laughs> if we just ability. get a stance, Matt, then you know. And I, th I think I'll stand normal. In addition to you know some of the discussions have been on not only how far forward you can stand, but how far back away from the plate you can stand. Which I don't know if the set the. I mean, the, four feet is still a pretty massive yeah, amount of space to go yeah. into. That's why I was thinking that the, I would say if you have a batter's box from baseball, which is six feet long by four feet long, but they have ninety foot bases and we have forty foot. Maybe you cut it in half and see what it looks like, but. Uh, I don't think it's on the docket for this year's league. So I guess it's just a matter of testing it and seeing what happens for next year. Uh, another point of contention or conversation at least was the what I called on a base protection, which is when you're standing on a base, what happens to you if a ball is hit, if a ball is thrown, what are those rules? Uh, we didn't get a whole lot of change from last year. We got zero changes. So anybody in the room at least have any comments or concerns that you see? I know obviously two members of the council are sitting here, so we voted on it as is. But what do you think, Josh? I've always been a proponent of if you're on a base in fair territory and a ball makes contact with you that hit from a batter, then you should be out. You should really have no business getting hit by a ball in fair territory. I know your, your example was a little bit, of a an, an enigma if you will but if you had you know one foot if your lead foot was foul and you know you jumped off the base then you would have it would have just been a dead ball and a foul ball um people have made an argument that you could theoretically get hit by a ball at second base but <laughs> it's a plastic ball and it's losing speed immediately after it loses the bat and if it does get past a pitcher who's theoretically directly in front of you you deserve to be out if you get hit by that ball. So, And, you know, it would just promote better base running awareness. If you ever watch me when I'm on first base, I am starting in foul territory even if the the batter is a right-hander because that allows me to kind of rock back and then kind of softball style a softball maneuver get right there. moving towards uh, second base when the ball is hit. So I'm in foul territory there, and I'm in foul territory at third base. The way that the rule is written now I could theoretically stand like a third baseman or a first baseman holding a runner on with my right foot on third base and the rest of my body in fair territory. And if a ball is hit, pretend like I'm trying to get out of the way whilst being able to block a ball and stop a defender from getting there. And since I'm making contact with third base, I would not be called out and that ball would be live. So You also wouldn't score. Right. I wouldn't score, but... In the event that that's a line drive and there's two outs and, you know, the batter, say I'm the next batter up and I'm on third base, I can block that ball, allow myself to become the next base okay. or the next batter. What an extremely specific situation <laughs> we've just described. Well, no, during the year last year, I remember I was like, well, if I just stand in play and, you know, say I have a pull heavy hitter on my team, like, oh, I don't know, Brian Boyson, who loves to pull the ball. What? Josh, I hate to interrupt you, but Carly just commented on the uh, message board. She said that if you're on the base and you get hit with the ball, you should be out. Right. That's, and what, that's what Josh said. That's what so, I'm saying. But Okay, but is it was it Steve? That, wasn't it Steve that sent that? 
that like Schroeder was adamant. He said that if you're on the base, like they said, I guess, uh, what is it like an infield fly rule, which we don't have. But I think that's the only way that a, a runner in real baseball can get hit with the ball, and they would not be out if they're on a base. There are a few ways, but none of those would apply to yeah. wiffle ball. Okay. I was more just stunned that Carly was actually sending messages. And Rich also has joined uh, just in time. We just got finished up talking about him, so it worked <laughs> out all right. <laughs> all that. So what I don't was mean to interrupt, Josh. You were you were talking. No, it's fine. Sorry, you just gave more people oh, supporting Josh's argument. So right. thanks for that. Yeah, I really appreciate. Well, you. Josh was talking quite a bit, so I was just trying to get some feedback here from from the other members of the league that's that's who all disagree with our rules. That's fine. <laughs> I don't mind not talking. You don't have to lie and say you hate to I was interrupt. Just interrupting you. I'm just trying to share. I'm sharing what the people. I prefer you share more of what the people want. I want to know what they want. Well, the biggest conversation definitely happened on a different topic, and that was if a player is unable to play due to injury. Uh, and I believe, as of right now, the rules are written only in response to injury and not with any other, um, whatever you want to call it, extraneous event. This is just related to an injury. Their team shall play without them, which seems kind of obvious. And each first time they are due at bat in an inning, an out shall be called until they return to the game. Do you make sense of that? <laughs> yes. Yes. So what do you think about that? Is that a fair response to the array of emails that came in? I think there are several solutions that could be argued as a fair response. Uh, and not to get too... Not to get too down on some of the suggestions, but I do think that there could there could be four or five, maybe not that many, but at least two or three suggestions that would be imperfect, but would be a fair response to this particular situation. Um, as the league has demonstrated for the last decade plus, there's always going to be a very specific situation that causes us to reevaluate where we are. But I think that's a natural part of the process. And I think, you know, the the specific minutia of what people seem to be discussing um, is, I don't want to say irrelevant, but it's, it's so specific that any of the two or three proposed solutions, I think, would be, I would say, yeah, that's fair. I'm, o I'm okay moving forward with that, with that as, as our choice. Yeah, I had a, I've had conversations with JF trying to kind of hone hone in on the best way to write and apply this rule, and I've also had conversations with Schroeder, and it seems like we're all in agreement that an out should be assessed. You know, when that batter comes to the plate, ideally once in an inning, you know, as opposed to perpetually when that batter comes to the plate. And I believe JF's biggest concern is the ability to walk a batter and then get to the automatic out and to end an inning. And my suggestion to JF was to just put something in there in parentheses that says in the event that the first two batters of an inning get out and then the third batter is walked to get to the fourth injured player who is no longer there, I think that that automatic out should then be thrown out to where then the rest of the inning will be played with no out penalty. So in the very specific instance of the first two batters getting out, 
Third batter gets walked. Fourth batter being the injured player who's no longer there. If you just don't take that automatic out there and every other time you do, then that would be a good way of never getting a walk to then end an inning and everything else should play the way I think the council wants it to play. Or maybe just don't get out the first two times in an inning. Well, obviously that's, <laughs> that's the best the way to do it. But <laughs> yeah, and I, and, sh- and st- the reason why I more for that suggestion, Schroeder and I were discussing today. Okay, say you're pitching, Laz and Russ. You, say you're pitching against my team last year. Paul's up first. You, you strike. Uh-oh, we back? Hello? And, Josh, thanks for the wrapping great, that up. That was awesome. <laughs> Amazing coverage. You're welcome. So specific. I You're hope we welcome. got that. Really, yeah. really nice breakdown of that new rule, uh, and we'll see what happens <laughs> when it does come into Maybe play. Maybe a slight amendment. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see. Uh, obviously, fingers crossed that we don't have to deal with this as injuries hopefully don't occur. I think as a league we've been very fortunate uh, with only a few uh, scrapes and bruises and whatever you did last year to your ankle. So I will say we're not getting any younger, so that's fair. The, the risk of injury Always. increases every year. Well, I stop, feel like that. Stop jumping over fences to rob yeah. my balls that I hit, and maybe you'll get a little less uh, hurt. Even though he was injured running from yeah, second to third, nobody has ever done that. So conti- unless, but you never know. You never. Les is on my team. You continue never, doing that. You never know. Uh, so that was just a preview for all of you not in the league of our email chain over the last three weeks. Uh, and I know I'm exhausted thinking about that, and I'm not exhausted thinking about the upcoming draft, Russ's big board, and everything left to do on this podcast. So I think we're going to take a few minutes to cool down, make sure that we are technologically sound for the next segment, and we'll be back with you in just a few moments. Thank you for hanging out. And welcome back into Studio H and the 24th episode of the Wiffle League podcast. It is that time that we have all been anxiously awaiting. We brought Russ in studio just for this one reason. He has his big board written out. We have an audience ready to hear about it. So without further ado, um, I I have no idea what's coming next. I haven't been prepped on this. As a host, that's not great, but as a listener, I'm ecstatic. I have no idea who you have number one on your big board. So, Russ, if you could kick this off, who do you have in the 2018 draft big board as our number one go target? Before I do, I feel like JF has also told me that I was brought in just to be a a guest as well, not just for the big board, and I have insights beyond what I'm about to reveal, so hopefully what I've done has been fun. (laughs) But number one on my big board is the most obvious choice, the gentleman to my left, Mr. Josh Wittenberg. Um, Every season since 2012, Josh has led the league in OPS and has shared uh, the league in hits. The only deviation from that is Steve Schroeder's amazing 2015 season with the Tourists. 
Um, as we talked about earlier, you know, it is my personal opinion that Josh is every year the best defensive player in the league, and over the last two or three years, you know, has become one of the top tier pitchers as well. So I don't, I don't think anybody can argue that Josh should demand the most money. Um, what that dollar value ends up being is a different story. But Josh is my number one. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody in the league would disagree with you. You look at some of the numbers in your big board. Uh, and I'm just, again, taking a sampling of some of the stats you've included. But the runs created at Chestnut, 105.44 runs created over the course of what is now six seasons at Chestnut is a number that can't even be close to touched in the league. That's just a regular season, too? Correct. <laughs> just saying. Well, you, you missed the playoffs a few years. That might hurt you as far as average per year. I haven't missed the playoffs at Chestnut. Son of a. And I will never, <laughs> now that the, everybody makes it. Fair most, enough. Most everybody. <laughs> <laughs> the laughter. Number two? So, number two, what do you have on that for All us? All right, so now here's where we might start to disagree, especially with the calculations that uh, Josh has put together here for draft value. But um, my number two overall is Steve Schroeder. What? Steve Schroeder is my number two overall uh, for a few reasons. Um, one, he is second all time in his career OPS. I understand that's just slightly, you know, the smallest of margins above uh, JF, who is arguably more consistent at the plate. Um, but Schroeder also brings in the pitching dynamic and. Uh, and the big board, uh, when you read it this year, you'll see that I've included the career postseason stats, which Steve Schroeder's pitching postseason stats uh, are incredible uh, compared to even his regular season stats, which are, you know, excellent on their own. But he cuts almost, um, you know, his regular season career uh, whip is 1.44. His postseason is 0.93. Um, his strikeout-to-walk ratio in the postseason is 23 strikeouts to three walks. Um, he, he's really kind of uh, a complete player. So uh, I noticed that you don't have your name as number two, and we'll get to where you do fall. I'm just quickly looking at the stats. You look at Steve Schroeder. So you said postseason, his performance is really hard to argue with. His calculated runs against in the playoffs is 1.42. Yours is just above at 1.65. But his... Uh, Whip is point nine three and yours is point eight seven. Uh, he's nine and three. You're five and five, but the run support I'm sure isn't there. Hits per game, you are a full half a hit less than him per game. So you look at just pitching in the postseason. I would say it's hard to distinguish you from him. And, look, you, and you look at postseason offense, and he's at a two eighty six, and you're at three hundred average. So if you're looking at just postseason numbers, I would give you the nod in that category. When you look at the regular season career OPS. Um, if you're looking at me specifically, he has me by uh, about 150 points. And even in the postseason, he, he is higher than me as well. So while pitching is obviously an important part of the game, offense, another important part of the game. All right. I'm not going to argue location on the big board here. I will agree with Russ 100% when he says that Schroeder is a formidable postseason pitcher. I mean, he, since we've been playing at Chestnut, He's logged the most innings in the postseason as a pitcher at almost 54 innings. And, you know, he has the most postseason wins with nine, almost twice as many as anybody else. He's been very fortunate to be on some excellent teams 
playing with myself a few times with Russ, with the Eckert brothers. Uh, so he has had successful teams, but when you're a pitcher, you're you're kind of on an island. You know, if if you're giving up hits or you're giving up home runs, your defense can't really do much. But when you are as good of a postseason pitcher as he is, you could make an argument that he is one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable person available in the auction. I will, uh, one last note before we get to number three. His uh, runs allowed is heavily weighted by his 20, sorry, 32 innings with the 66ers and the crosscutters, both Josh defended teams where he only allowed uh, four runs over the course of four games. Since then, he has allowed 15 runs over the course of five games. So uh, it might be recency bias. I know the whole stats in general is recency bias because of how small a sample size is, but I will say that in the last few years, he has definitely seen more um, human than he did in those first few postseason appearances. He also has two of the last three championships. Where? And two last two in a row. Three of the last four. There you go. Six of the last eight. Ten of the last 14. <laughs> All right, Russ. number three. <laughs> Who do you have as number three? All right, let the debate begin. My number three is Justin Filardo. What? I know. I know. But hear me out a little bit here. I, would, I almost don't want you. I almost don't even think we need to hear you out. Come on. Can I tell you why not? <laughs> okay, yeah, you go first. Okay, he doesn't pitch, I think. Period. Period. Justin Filardo. I'm reading verbatim. We all know the argument. JF doesn't pitch. (laughs) JF told (laughs) us. I didn't even read that. Nice work. (laughs) But, okay, so this is, for me, uh, you know, drafting as a captain, and and you know from being a captain, you want to find value wherever you can. Um, I don't know if Justin will be the third most expensive player, but I think the value that you're going to get for him is going to warrant him as being like the third, the third best player comparable to what he's going to go for in an auction draft. So my argument is this, is that um, outside of Josh, uh, Justin has been the most consistent offensive player in league history. Um, he has never had an OPS under 894, um, and he is third overall in his OPS. Um, a capable defender, great teammate, um, but addressing the pitching, if we look at 2017, um, the difference, so if you look at the top eight pitchers in innings pitched, and you look at calculated runs against, um, the difference between the number one pitcher in calculated runs against, which was me with 2.43, and the number eight pitcher, basically the worst pitcher calculated runs against was Steve Andrews with a 3.69. The difference between the best and worst pitchers was only 1.26 runs against, which is such a small number in the grand, like one run a game, which Justin offensively generated 11 runs in nine games. So he's making up for that difference of not pitching. Off the record, I guess on the record because I'm saying it on the podcast, Justin has expressed that you know, he might want to dabble in, uh, in the circle this season, but even if that doesn't happen, he still falls as, as my number three overall. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and to your point, uh, with, it really is just an equation of runs allowed as a pitcher compared to uh, 
runs created as a batter and you look at my numbers historically my runs created aren't anywhere near what he can do i'm looking at season or numbers from last year justin was almost 12 runs and you were at uh 5.73 runs created i was at seven but that was because i had a lot more guys on base throughout the season and the ability to kind of do more things and more chances to hit so uh those aren't really uh, impressive numbers as far as what justin can do with a bat uh and his career runs allowed this is regular season stats is 4.44 and let's just say someone like me i'm at 2.7 i think brandon is at 3.1 so it's negligible about a run a game as far as or a little over a run a game as far as a pitcher his uh hits per game he actually gives up less hits per game than i do at 4.9 to 5.05 fewer <laughs> number four <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my number four on my big board is uh, Jason Hillenbrand. Okay. Do you guys want to go first? Do you want me to go first? I would love for you to make your case. All right, so um, I think last – so we talked earlier about potential offensive anomalies for players. Um, you know, not that last year was necessarily an anomaly for somebody like Mike Satry, but – he had never had an OPS over 700 before lighting it up last year. You look at, you know, Brian Boyson's 2016 where he has an OPS over 1,200 where he's somewhere in the 600 range historically. Um, Jason is somebody who I would project to hit more like his 2017 season than his rookie seasons. I think um, he is getting better with experience offensively, and I think – you know, the, the knock, I think, that everybody understands about Jason is at times he loses the feel for the strike zone as a pitcher. Defensively, you know, I don't know why he, he, he's not recognized as, you know, a top five defender or nominated because I think he's just as capable in, in left field as, as anybody else's. Um, but really when you, you know, so his, his regular season career strikeout to walk, he actually has a negative ratio of 39 strikeouts to 51 walks. However, in the postseason, now that everybody makes the postseason and, and that's really what's important, I don't know if there's a clutch gene that captains buy into, but <laughs> um, his strikeout-to-walk ratio completely reverses um, where he's at 21 uh, strikeouts to eight walks, basically a three-to-one ratio, um, you know, and his whip goes from 1.76 down to 1.39. So a much better player in the playoffs, which is really when you want your top-tier players to perform at their best. And Jason has seemed to do that, and I think offensively he continues where he left off from 2017. Yeah, I don't think I, I can argue that Jason is, in my mind, the, the fourth best available option in the draft. I just think that it's the people ahead of him that <laughs> I'm in disagreement with. I, Fair enough. So I'll just read a couple numbers. Not that numbers matter. Um, I would make the same arguments that you made to Jason, or about Jason, to, about you. I think that you're a better header now than you were five years ago at Chestnut. I think the strides that you're taking are similar and, and, more cons and just as consistent. And just I went to both, so this is both postseason and regular season stats. Uh, you're very similar to offensive lead runs created. He's at 56.98, so basically 57, and you're at 57.7. So the course of uh, six seasons, you're within one run created, but
but your runs allowed is almost a full run difference per game pitching. So if you just look at that, again, that's all postseason, regular season included. Everything you're looking at, you give up a little bit uh, less than, or a little bit more than one hit less per game, fewer per game, whatever the hell it is. Uh, <laughs> your postseason win-loss win record is better than his, less hits, less runs. So pitching-wise, I think that you have the edge, and hitting-wise, you are nearly identical. So that's where I would give you the nod. Uh, and maybe to Josh's point, maybe it's it's J- uh, Justin moving out of there as opposed to Jason. But uh, I do understand the there's there's more to uh, a player getting drafted than just his numbers, than just his performance. I know that I can speak from experience that Justin is a great teammate to have on your team. He's a leader, uh, and he's a calming presence in what could otherwise be a chaotic situation. So I think there's more variables than just the numbers. Can I ask Josh to look something up as I am explaining the number five on my big board? Sure. Um, going back to defending my choice of Justin at number three, um, you know, that pitching can at times come out of nowhere, right? And not I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but, you know, I have been a decent pitcher over the last five, six years at Chestnut and never have won pitcher of the year while Steve Andrews, you know, has one pitcher of the year while, um, like Mike Satry has one pitcher of the year twice where, not you know, a, pitching, chestnut, pitching from but. year to year can, can be a roller coaster and hitting as well from year to year can be a roller coaster where Justin offensively, you know, exactly what you're going to get. He's done it since the beginning where, you know, even though I feel rather bullish on Jason offensively in 2018, you know, there's a chance that he regresses a little bit to the norm, but I don't think there's a chance that JF regresses in any way, shape, or form. Where to your point, I mean Justin's worst runs created season was eight point zero eight, which is uh, a full run more than three of your seasons, and a lot more of mine as well. And Jason's, I think we have a lot more of a yo-yo effect. I don't think that Justin has had a down year offensively. Jason's highest OPS year was eleven hundred, uh, which was point um, zero eight points higher than JF's average season. So, you know, the next player's best ever OPS season is pretty much what Justin does on a yearly basis regardless. Sure. Did I ask you what to look up or did... You did not. Okay. It's all right. (laughs) How Um, many times JF was nominated for Offensive Player of the Year? And then I'll go on to my number five and we can come back to that. JF's been nominated for Offensive Player of the Year Five times, two of which have occurred at Chestnut Field or Park. So I'm guessing the only player nominated more is you. I'm just slipping it in here, but I think I've been fourth. Like four times. Josh, you and I have discussed this occasionally. Yeah. I'm I'm almost there at certain years, but I've definitely been fourth. Well, and and we've also discussed that Sometimes when we're determining between the third and the fourth nominee in the event that neither of those individuals are going to win, sometimes we'll give the nod to somebody who is less likely to have had that nomination before. So I don't think that's true. No, we we discussed it last year where if two players, number three and number four, no, uh, are pretty cons- pretty much the same stats. We're more likely to give the nod to four if that's somebody who's never been nominated before. No, because over- then, well, I don't want to get into this because it would take forever. But I mean, I was a triple better than Mike last year, and I still so that means that I would have chosen Mike in that scenario. 
if if what you're saying is true. So honestly, I've always tried to look at things in a vacuum and do the top three. That's why you're the sportsman of the year. Just saying. So my number five. So uh, back to JF. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, he does have five offensive nominees. I just said that. Okay. I think Justin tried to correct you saying four. Which I think is second most. He, uh, no, he wasn't saying four Nominations. to that. Got it. Anyways. So my number five is me. Um, <laughs> Finally. Jeez. Flip that five around and put it in a mirror. I'm just saying, I don't, I'm, I'm going to move on to six relatively quickly here, but shoulder nodded 100%. Number six. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, you want me to discuss you'll see, the statistics? No. You'll see, you'll see it when, when the big board comes out. My number six is the new host of the Wiffle Podcast, uh, Chris Lazzarini. Um, Chris is, so where JF is being kind of looked at with the, the players above him, you know, I think Chris at, at number six. Who's Chris? Laz, Laz, sorry. Laz's mom. Um, you're looking at the players below him. And his career OPS uh, is noticeably higher than every player below him on the list. We talked about his success in the circle this season, and really he's a perennial pitcher of the year candidate. Um, the the one knock, uh, there's more statistically, than one. There's, the, the, there's more than one. Okay, I was trying to be nice, but the <laughs> glaring knock against Laz statistically would be that postseason offensive performance with just a 417 OPS. Yes. Um, but, I, you know, in, in facing Laz as a hitter, that knuckleball just kills me every time. And, you know, there, there's no reason why – there's really no reason why he's hitting 400 points lower in the postseason uh, than in the regular season. So I, I wouldn't put too much stock in that. And Chris Lazarini is my number six. I would love there not to be stock in that, and I don't have a good answer. I did come out with a 291 batting average in this most recent postseason, which I was personally proud of, the 750 OPS. But uh, before that, it was tough sledding in the postseason as far as from the plate. I don't really have a defense for that. But I think that the distinguish, as you said, between I've always considered myself kind of the bottom of one tier or the top of another tier. I think it's always hard to put me there. I know we're out of the tier conversation, but I think it's a reasonable spot to slip me in there. The argument that you can make against Laz is essentially the same argument that you can make against JF, and that is they do two things exceptionally well, but leave something to be desired more than others in the other category. You, when you talk to, to and about JF, excellent defender, excellent hitter, big question mark pitching. When you talk about Laz, excellent pitcher, excellent defender, some years great hitter, some years substandard, and in the playoffs consistently substandard. When you look at the amount of Wiffle championships that these guys have won, considering they've been in the league since the beginning, don't say it. It kind of speaks to why they have three combined between them in what twenty six years of Wiffle seasons played. It's it's not that they aren't great Wiffle players. It's that they are one segment short of being that complete player. And it's not surprising when you look at somebody like Hanchman, somebody like Russ, somebody like Schroeder, who's been in the league for 
fewer seasons than they have. They have six, Great use of three, three or four championships. You know, between those guys, they have 13, whereas you have some guys that may combine for more total seasons and they only have three. Which is why those players that you listed are higher than Laz on the big board. However, right, but if, somebody, nobody, <laughs> if someone came up to me and said, you know what, Laz hit with an 1,100 OPS in 2018, that I would say, yeah, I think he could do that. And so, um, you know, just as a captain, um, I think Laz's ceiling is higher than what his performance has been. Like, I don't know offensively if he's reached his ceiling, but I don't think it's because there's a lack of ability. You know, there might be other factors at play, but, you know, if if Laz was in the conversation for Offensive Player of the Year in 2018, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be a, a gigantic shock to right. me. I, I 100% agree, and I think that that almost backs up my point even more. It's not that Laz and JF are incapable of being great postseason hitters or... Uh, serviceable pitchers or even a great pitcher obviously jf played baseball he understands the fundamentals of throwing the ball and everything like that it's just that they haven't proven yet that they can do that can they i 100 percent believe they can i 100 percent believe that jf can pitch 14 innings in a season we just haven't seen it you know right. we, we nobody would have believed that steve andrews could win pitcher of the year yet he did it and did it with the lowest calculated runs against like ever recorded. So it's not that we don't think that these players are capable. It's just sometimes they can't prove it. Yeah, and I think that, uh, well, a lot goes into that. The difference is with Justin, if you take him, uh, you put him on the mound, you take him out of the field, which he's obviously so good at. And I will say, I'm not trying to boast my stock, but people who aren't in the room looking at me, uh, I have had a, a bit of a, a weight transformation over the last few months. I'm coming in to 2018 lean and mean. Uh, we'll say Kyle Schwarber-esque, uh, if you will. Hey, Check out the big board. I disagree with that point that you said, you know, <laughs> take him out of the... If you put him... No, 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 no. Not, not Laz's weight. <laughs> I meant if you look Moving at, on. If you moving look, on. Number seven. If you take Russ or Laz, who are excellent pitchers, they've both won Defensive Player of the Year from the mound. You need to be an excellent defender as a pitcher. And JF is that number seven and maybe i don't know maybe i'm talking maybe this person should be higher this is brandon eckert um brandon eckert can run uh several miles at a 640 pace i don't know if any of you were aware of that don't believe that's true this is what he said when we were at steve andrews last weekend (laughs) how many beers that he had he also i don't know but he was very adamant and not only touting himself but like putting me down which I didn't feel great about. How many miles does he think he can run at that pace? I think he said three or four. I, f- I think it was in that range. I used to be able to do that. I doubt it. He does highly. Get to, he does get to first base relatively quickly, which does turn a lot of ground outs into singles. I will say that. Nonetheless, Brandon is the uh, is a back to back Wiffle champion. Go Fireflies! Um, he is a legitimate defense. He's turned himself into, I think, a defensive player of the year candidate um, every year. Um, you know, he, he had an argument for being snubbed, especially with the phenomenal play that was up for play of the year. Um, but most shocking to me as I was going back and mining through some of the stats is Brandon's postseason pitching stats. I think, and Josh can double check me on this. I believe he is the only pitcher in Wiffle history to not allow a postseason walk. 
at 10 strikeouts and no walks. And that's in 14 innings pitched. Is that true, Josh? Hanchman also does not have a postseason walk, but he's not alive anymore, so it's okay. <laughs> he oh. is just not speaking English. What, uh, <laughs> I wonder, I wonder what, you, what your thoughts are as far as Brandon. You talked about Jason coming back and, and continuing his ascension in offense, similar to what I commented about you. You have Brandon, who was tied with both Josh and Justin with three nominations for awards last year, winning uh, postseason MVP, but also nominated for Defensive Player of the Year as well as Play of the Year. Uh, do you see a similar kind of trajectory for his career of only getting better with his return to the league, or do you think there's a possible, what, now junior year, senior year slump? I think Brandon brings such enthusiasm to every game that he plays that regardless of his team's record or, you know, I don't want to say regardless of his teammates because he seems to love playing with whoever he's playing with, but I think he would love playing with anybody. I think that he just lets it all out on the field and, you know, has fun doing it, and uh, yeah, I see him being consistent or even you know getting better. It's hard to get better on ten strikeouts, no walks in the postseason, so let's temper that a little bit. But um, you know, I think with Brandon, you're going to get you know at the very least um, a a handful of infield singles that are legged out because of his speed, and you're going to get a, you know 100 percent effort in, in everything that happens. So speaking of that, just infectious energy and attitude on the field. Who do you have next on your big board? Number eight is Mike. Well, I don't even get to talk about Brandon. No, we're moving on. (laughs) No, yeah. I will say, (laughs) I'm going to talk anyway. With Brandon, I, I have him exactly where you have him, just a little bit of the people before him mixed up. But Brandon is excellent because of his attitude. And Brandon is excellent because... I don't know if you guys would disagree, but he's a scrappy player. Yeah. Would you say that? Yes. He's a hustle guy. Like you were saying, he beats out those balls to first base. What are hustle guys excellent at? Defense. You know why? Because they try their ass off to get to a ball that maybe they can get to. And if he can't get to it, he's going to do his best to get it in it quickly as he can. Right. He's also a very smart guy, so he will adjust his offense and where he wants to hit the ball to get on base and to put himself in a better opportunity to reach base safely. And I think that I do pretty much the same thing that Brandon does. I like to think I'm a a smart player. I like to think I'm a scrappy guy. And I see Brandon, if he continues to do what he does, excellent pitcher, excellent defender, getting better at hitting, he could continue to climb that big board and be, be up near the top where Russ should be. I will say I don't, th- I don't think there's many guys in the league that I would talk about as not giving a lot of effort. But uh, that being said, as we close in on the 10 o'clock hour central time, uh, we want to continue to move on to number eight. So, Russ, who do you have on your big board number, coming at number eight? So my number eight is Mike Satry, who I've personally been wanting to play with for a while, and it just, you know, the last couple of years hasn't happened. But um, we talked about earlier in the show Mike – went absolutely bonkers offensively in 2017. Um, I I personally attribute that to a certain cohesion with his teammates and the optimism for the Tortugas for the 2017 season. I know um, in 2016 there was kind of a a lull at the end of the season, um, you know, for Mike, but from beginning to end of 2017 was in it to win it, and that was seen in, in... particularly his offensive play. Um, he wasn't asked to pitch at all, 
um, obviously with Laz and uh, Jason mm-hmm. um, taking up the the entirety of the innings. Sure. Um, and actually, uh, you know, you had mentioned Mike being a, a top tier defender. Statistics don't necessarily bear that out for the 2017 season. Um, understanding that third base is a is a difficult position to play with the the speed at which balls um, get into the defender zone, but um, I, I'm not sure Mike can easily replicate his offensive success from 2017. But but I think he's you know trending in the right direction from his career stats. So we'll see what little Owen has to say about his dad's performance in in 2018. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I would have on Mike is I think the person that you have coming in after him. So if we can, I'd like to just talk about him together, actually. So who do you have in that number nine spot, and then how can we look at those two together? So number nine is Brian Boyson. And, one-time uh, roommate of Mike Satry. He was one of the, uh, when I was going through the stats, one of the players who surprised me the most because you think about the season um, that his team had particularly offensively, and you think, man, it was a completely lost year for Brian Boyson. But um, in the postseason, um, Brian ended up with seven hits, which uh, amounted to about a 1,200 OPS, which was eerily close to his 2016-1291 OPS. Mm -hmm. So if you look at you know his 2016 regular season, postseason, and his 2017 regular season and postseason, he had two bad days which I think we all can say we've, we've had those bad days. Um, similar to a couple other players, Brian doesn't pitch, um, but he is one of, I think you said, four players to win Defensive Player of the Year, not named Josh Wittenberg. True. Um, former Sportsmanship Award winner and Heart and Hustle Award nominee. Didn't win it. Nominee. Um, Brian Boyson is my number nine. When you look at the numbers, again, I'm looking at both postseason and regular season stats for uh, the Mike versus Brian comparison, they've each had what I would call an anomaly season. Mike's was in 2017 with 14.6 runs runs created. Brian's was the year before at 14.7 runs created. Outside of that, neither of them have been above 7.5. So those are almost double what they're typically doing on average. Outside of that, their offensive numbers are relatively consistent. Mike is a little bit more of the singles hitter. Brian hits a few more long balls occasionally from the left side of the plate. <laughs> but statistically, very similar um, and Brian has done that in fewer at bats. I know that you know Mike. I haven't seen him at a position outside of short field, but we all know he's a staple there. Brian gives you the flexibility to play multiple positions and can run down balls in the outfield. And if you're not getting what you need from Mike on the mound, as if you're not asking him for it, like we didn't last year, and you might not need to next year. Uh, just looking side by side, as far as firepower goes uh, and consistency, I might give a nod here to Brian uh, as the as a potential to be uh, more duplicating his most, his most recent two seasons. Because in 2012, 13, and 14, he was averaging only about three runs a season created. And recently, he's averaging more like nine or ten. I think that's a completely fair assessment. The reason that I gave Mike the nod over Brian is because Mike has pitched and can pitch. Career 1.66 whip, while not the best, definitely a respectable um, whip. And um, could be a team's number two um, if called upon, where jury's still out on Brian. One of the two players to never pitch an inning at Chestnut, Brian and Luke. Nice. Josh, any thoughts on the right, safety Josh. versus Boyson? 
No, I, going? Oh. I totally agree. Okay. Uh, number 10, Dustin Eckert. Dustin Eckert. I wanted to make in the big board a joke about, I thought about, man, like, because Dustin can hit to multiple fields. So I want to say something about like a spray charter, like spraying it with a big fire hose, like a big hose, like Dustin's got a big hose. Huh. I wasn't able to work. The, I couldn't. I wasn't wordsmithing very well. You, you just did. Great delivery there. I, Great yeah. delivery. Yeah. Perfect. But uh, this is your speechwriter, Josh. <laughs> Dustin um, actually had more hits in 2017 than both me and Schroeder, if you can believe that. A, a lot of it, uh, thanks yet to he's below Brian Boyson, and let his, <laughs> a lot of that thanks to the bunt which Dustin executed to perfection in 2017. He also only struck out two times. He was the only player in the entire Wiffle League with a 100 fielding percentage. Um, so maybe I'm just a complete fool for putting him at number 10 on my list. Well, what do you guys I, got? I, 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 I can't pass this up as I'm looking at your, your, uh, your explanation. A 343 batting average against myself and has yet to strike out against Josh. I think those are fun numbers. I'd love to see what other people, uh, if anyone's close to those numbers. Yeah, a lot of uh, chatter on Facebook Live right now that Dustin's getting jobbed here. Uh, as the person who wrote the list, fair. <laughs> I think that's a fair criticism, and you know that's this is for the captains to decide. I mean, again, I don't. I know that Bill James's runs created is not the only stat you can look at offensively, but. Uh, his last three seasons, Dustin's at 6, 2.7, and 3.6 compared to Brian and Mike, who have both had 14 run seasons in the last two years. I know that doesn't mean everything, but I would say trending, he is a singles hitter that doesn't provide always the major spark. He's a glue hitter as far as bridging a gap, maybe between some RBI guys. But you look at what Brian and Mike can do, um, he doesn't hit home runs. He hasn't had a home run since 2012. He only has one triple in the last three years, three doubles in the last three years. Uh, if you want singles and you want an on-base person, you're going to get that. He's patient. He does take his walks. He, has, he limits his strikeouts to an extent. But uh, I would say firepower alone, knowing that you're not getting a pitcher out of Dustin either, uh, I think I'm comfortable with where you have him. Number 11 is... Chris Curtin. This list is sexist. <laughs> Chris Curtin, uh, in my big board, I say if I were captain of the season, I would draft him. And I would, I don't know if this is giving away too much strategy, but I would, I would draft him early. I would lock him up and uh, reap the results come, come the Wiffle season. What do you guys think? I think the same can be said really about any of the, the last four guys you said, Satry, Boyson, Dustin, Curtin, and even Carly. I think if you can wrap up one of those players early, that just gives you more money, especially if you can get them at, a, at a, you know what you would consider a bargain price. If you can wrap them up early, like you know the Lazzarini hijacking of the first auction draft, which was a brilliant move. I wish I had done it. Uh, if you can wrap up early, it just gives you more money to play with on draft only drafting two players. Just makes it easier. Last. I would say the risk is still there. I know you look at his numbers from season to season. He has, I mean, the legend season, I would say, again, you talk about statistical anomalies in an already small sample size, and 
you know, he his numbers compared to Dustin, uh, just straight up, Dustin has been a more consistent and better producing hitter over the last uh, six years at Chestnut. Uh, I mean, no one has had quite the the floor that Chris has had, especially with, with his dragon season is is one that people probably don't want to see much of. I know he has the potential to, t- to toe the rubber a few times, but I wouldn't recommend that either with his uh, 5.75 runs allowed per game. So when it comes to just looking at uh, him compared to the competition above him, I don't think there's any reason to move him up there, and I would still be wary as a captain to try to steal one of him or a player like that. I think that you can probably shore up uh, some numbers offensively and some consistency defensively if you uh, target somebody else with maybe not $3 at the onset of the first round, but something still lower than what you expect. I disagree almost like 100% with that. Curtin is a, a excellent offensive player, and he's proven to be significantly uh, adept at playing the short fielder. If you look at his batting average, both regular season or combined, he's hitting over 260 for his career at Chestnut Park, which is better than regular season, postseason combined for Mike Satry and better than regular season or postseason combined for Brian Boyson. So the question you have to ask yourself is, do you need a short fielder or do you need an outfielder? Because if you need a short fielder, you can get a lefty bat and somebody who's been more consistent at the plate than Satry. And if you need an outfielder, then you're not going to draft Curtin. But Curtin is significantly valuable as a short fielder and as a nearly 300 hitter every year. And he had, I think in 2016, he hit to the tune of a 357 batting average, which was fifth best in the league. Yep, that's correct. And, I mean, he he draws walks, too. Every year, he's drawn at least one walk, and he averages close to three and a half a season for the last four seasons. So he's an on-base guy. What makes me excited that we have a debate that spans four different players with the ones that we do know. That means that it's probably not going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be easier to have a nice balanced team. You're not looking at somebody that you're stuck with. That being said, who is, well, number, number, 12, who is number 12 on your big board? I feel compelled to read uh, my entry from the big board verbatim here because it's something that I'm passionate about. By all means. Okay. Carly Korich, number 12. Carly, we think it's very admirable that you're saying time's up to this all-male ball, all-male wiffle ball league. But we all know deep down that diversity isn't what it's cracked up to be. There's a reason why our league has thrived under the leadership of white landowning men, right? Captains, be wary. Carly has a lot to prove. I mean, she'll play the same amount of games as a man, but only wind up with 70% of the hits a man would get. (laughs) And while her statistics at Augustana College hint that Carly comes with a relatively safe floor, her ceiling isn't too high, and it's class. (laughs) Oh my gosh, this is terrible. One thing we can all agree on are the immortal words of Jimmy Dugan from A League of Their Own. Girls are what you sleep with after the game, not, not what you coach during the game. Draft her at your own risk. Gosh, I'm glad I did not read that beforehand. It was awful. <laughs> and with that, Jason spelled her name wrong on the big board. <laughs> oh, no. How did he spell it? It was totally a quote-unquote accident. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was an all lowercase letters, Can we get it back too, up probably. there, Jay, real quick? All right. I don't... 
Can I be serious for a second? He's working. No. Out. Yeah. Okay. Go no, ahead. no, no. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead, Lance. I've said my piece. Yeah, that's uh, that's why we have special guests in the studio. Uh, never know what you're gonna get, but I think it's another Tom Hanks movie. I think uh, I'm not sure. I assume everybody uh, at least drafting has seen her video uh, highlights so far, and uh, I think it's gonna be very interesting to see how she stacks up against the rest of the names that we just named, Satri, Boyson, Curtin, and Dustin, uh, and Carly, I think it quite possibly are inter- interchangeable uh, at any given season. I think that any of them have the potential to be the leader in batting average or runs created in that category or in that group. Uh, I think defensively, it's still a bit of a wild card. I hope that she can try the, try the pitching rubber for a little bit and see what that feels like. Um, I'd love to see if she can end up as a, a, a mid-tier or a top-tier pitcher. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's – I would probably have her higher on the board and take a leap of faith. But, obviously, Russ is stuck in the 1940s. So Now, Russ, speaking as a high school softball coach, I'm looking at her stats, and I see 24 stolen bases across – I believe the number of games was close to, like, 95, 94, something like that. How difficult is it to steal a base in softball? I know there's no leadoffs, correct? Correct. So, so you can leave the base once the ball leaves the pitcher's hand. Oh, once it, I, I always thought it was once it crosses the plate. Incorrect. Okay. So, but from your experience, how difficult to steal a base? Uh, it, you know, it's pretty tough, especially in college. Um, you know, Carly comes in with 24 stolen bases at Augustana. Um, you know, that's, that's not nothing. So it's not nothing. It's not speaks nothing. to her wheels, I imagine. I think we're all a step slower than we were in college. Um, but looking at, you know, so I got Carly's uh, college numbers. She ended her career with a 436 on base percentage and a 675 slugging percentage. So that equates to a little over an 1100 career OPS, yeah. which I know it doesn't quite translate to Whiffle, <laughs> but would put her second all time behind Josh. Nice. So that's but she's a girl, so that's Russ's big board. Uh, I know you slave over that every year, and second did, all time. It, That'd be awesome. It did <laughs> not. So awesome. It did not disappoint. Uh, I know it'll be sent out to the league to read the full descriptions and explanations and jabs, jokes, and everything else that he's included. So uh, it's a good good read. Uh, I think that you all should be looking forward to that. Uh, what do we have coming up next, though, is a quick little analysis of the draft, uh, I believe. Uh, and I'm thinking we're going to have to wrap this up before we run out of tape. Yeah, we'll just do uh, a quick one or two minute break. We'll come back. We'll do the coming attractions. We'll have Josh run that down real, real fast, and we'll get you out of here. Sounds good. We will be back very soon. And welcome back as we scrape, I think, is it near midnight by now? I don't know how long it is. It's been a while. Glad uh, you're sticking around with us. I hope it was some valuable conversation. I know that it's, uh, it's been a privilege listening to Russ and Josh discuss these boards, these players. And if I can, I believe, Josh, you have a little bit more insight into uh, some strategy, some uh, possible 
ranking systems, maybe some captain discussion. So I'll turn it over to you to see what you got as we touch on the upcoming Wiffle Draft, which a uh, little plug for us is coming up this Saturday, April 7th, 6 p.m. at Emmett's Pub in Palatine. So what do you have as far as a little bit more of a breakdown for us? So I obviously don't have any opinions of my own. I just formulate observations that I've cultivated from the statistics. And in my disagreement with Russ, I was merely stating that it's a scientific fact what players should be valued at. So <laughs> what I fair, my big board was less scientific and more just based <laughs> on my heart. I, know. I really like JF as a human, that's why I put him in number three. <laughs> Sorry, Carly. No, so so what Girls. I did was I took I took the offensive stats from 2015, 2016, and 2017, and I I figured out a way mathematically to assign a dollar value to theoretical runs created on base plus slugging as well as weighted on base averages and that gave me a three three different monetary numbers out of four hundred dollars from the total amount of money available during the draft to calculate the offensive stats and then i did the same thing for calculated runs against as well as whip for pitchers and then I fudged some numbers on defense based on, you know, a small rating should be based on defense because offense and pitching are significantly more important, sure. in my opinion. Created a draft value composite, divided that by the appropriate amount to come up with a value for everybody, rounding to the nearest whole dollar, creating a total of $400 available as will be available to the captains in the draft. So you're sharing this with the entire league, the captains. So you're I mean, basically giving them the cheat sheet, and if they follow this, they'll get the best team they can. It won't necessarily... I guarantee you that the numbers that the players are drafted won't shake out where they're listed here, but it's more of a, a guideline to say, even though somebody like Russ or JF or Laz or myself was drafted in the past at whatever, the amount of value you're actually deriving from that player is approximately this level. Can I chime in one thing from the the big board? Sure. Um, None of the top two monetary players from the past two auction drafts, so that would be JF and Jason in 2016 and you and me in 2017, won the Wiffle Series. Interesting. I will say there is an element to this where you talk about, uh, you know, as a as a fantasy football player and a, an auction draft participant. That was obviously some of my history going into the first draft and part of the strategy with the curtain three dollars snag. But you look at those drafts and you can usually correlate quality with numbers, get a feel for how these leagues shake out, and it'll give you some answers. The problem with this, the sample size, not only in stats, but of the players drafted are so small, you just can't look back at a previous year's draft and gain anything as far as insight goes. So what you've done is eliminate some of those variables because you have some people that have money to burn. So, of course, I'll pay all the money I can to get that last guy. Why not? And you're taking out some of that variable again and make it relevant to the most recent stats. Right, yeah. I'm not taking an average of what people have been drafted at the last couple years. I'm taking what their offensive output and what their pitching output has said that they're worth, monetarily speaking, with the amount of money available in the league. So if you can, then just uh, we'll say, what were the two biggest discrepancies between Russ's expertise, knowledge, and writing, and then your objective formula that you found? The, The two biggest, I would say, are Russ Anderson, who is 
valued by the calculation as the second most valuable player at $54. Okay. And Justin Filardo, who on your list was, I believe, the third. third most valuable. On my list, I have him as the seventh most valuable. Chump change. That's ridiculous. And his That's absolute garbage. His dollar value. This table over. His dollar value based on stats is approximately $32. Now, as I mentioned, there's a significant weighing towards pitching, which JF doesn't have any sure. pitching statistics. And I, I even threw out pitching statistics for people who had less than really like 20-some innings pitched. So like Satri had nine innings pitched he's over the a, course he's of... He's not a pitcher. Right. So I took those those stats out because they were too heavily weighing on his and bringing his value way up. So. Got it. Uh, the highest player was myself at sixty dollars, Russ at fifty-four, and then Schroeder forty-six, Hillenbrand forty-one, Laz thirty-eight, Brandon thirty-six, Filardo thirty-two, Satri twenty-seven, Boyson twenty-three, Dustin sixteen, Curtin fourteen, and Carly at thirteen, which is totally a made-up number, but right. I assigned some values to her based on what I've seen, and I gave her zero pitching value. So if she has any pitching value, then she'll be worth even more than that thirteen dollars. That is interesting. I like to. I'll. I'll look forward to analyzing that again against Russ's board to see where the discrepancies are. But in general, to see how that really shakes down at the draft, you know that it's not just going to be that simple. Uh, especially as somebody decides to overpay for a passion pick. Yeah, it would be uh, interesting to see how those numbers shake out if you include the 2014 season, or if you. I chose to eliminate Do not that include season. the 2015 season and only talked about the the last two. Mm-hmm. I wonder if any of those rankings would change. They they would likely change, and I chose to throw out the 2014 because that was the first year of the pitcher circle, and there were a number of batters who batted significantly higher than their historic averages, which I felt was a getting used to of the fact that the pitcher needs to stay in the circle, and more hits were were resulting from people leaving and not getting back to the circle, stuff like that. Is there anything in the rules about pitching overhand or would Carly be able to bring in some of that underhand softball business as long as it has I don't a, think there's anything in the rules rule. the unwritten speed rule is not violated I think we're okay now that would really be something I agree that would definitely I don't be something it, did anybody even ever think or consider anything like that from I her? think that with the the, sh- the shape density the hollowness of the wiffle ball you can make up for some of the movement that a softball pitcher would get that a baseball pitcher wouldn't, um, a rise ball, for example, you can still make happen with a wiffle ball throwing overhand. Yeah, I mean, as, if, the only thing I've done is thought about a slow pitch softball or a slow pitch wiffle ball game as like a celebrity game uh, as part of the wiffle series festivities, but it's already too complicated. So maybe we'll save that one for a different year. But uh, so that's awesome. I look forward to seeing more about those numbers and reading more in depth and wasting more time at work. Uh, I do want to quickly touch on the captains at this year's draft. I don't know if you even mentioned this yet, but we do have Luke Pollard, who has claimed the Wood Ducks as his logo. Uh, We have Steve Andrews, who has claimed the Tarpons. Uh, I kind of wish he took their city name, too, because I believe it's the Tampa Tarpons, which is a a fun little alliteration. You have Paul Stumbaugh claimed the fan favorite Rumble Ponies, which I'm sure is going to get a lot of traction and hopefully a lot of gear purchased. Not my sister's favorite team. Uh, I'm sure he'll make everyone else buy their own shirts or something. But it's a a fun logo of what looks like a pony holding a bat and wearing boxing gloves, so mixing all sorts of metaphors. But uh, could be some fun gear there. And then you have Dave Leap as the Drillers. I don't know if there's an innuendo there or if he just really enjoys oil, but. (laughs) 
Uh, that to me is unfortunately the least fun looking logo. Uh, that being said, Dave, it doesn't mean I don't want to play with you as he insinuated in a Gchat conversation earlier last week. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, so any thoughts on captains, on logos, or on any strategy as we say, uh, wrap up this segment and look at closing this thing out? I will say last night I was texting Dave while watching the, the NCAA championship game and he was talking about how he's excited to draft me and going to draft some other people. And then I was texting with Schroeder and he said that Dave said the same thing to Schroeder, how he was excited to draft Schroeder and not me. So He said the same thing to me. Wow. And he said he wanted Russ. He, also, wow. he definitely texted me twice <laughs> asking me if I wanted to be a driller. Breaking news. Dave is Dave a is whore. sleeping around. Uh, that is awesome, and maybe we'll get some answers from Dave on our next podcast, which we also will hopefully get some Vegas plays as we look at the 2018 season. I apologize, 2018 season. So uh, as I mentioned, we have the Wiffle Draft coming up this weekend, Saturday, uh, April 7th, 6 p.m. at Emmett's. Uh, we do have a tentative opening day scheduled for April 29th, a Sunday, at the end of what hopefully is a warmer month than March has been because it has been a struggle to get outside recently. Uh, and again, my guess is we'll have another podcast come out before the regular season starts. So once we shake down the chaos that is draft night, we'll have a chance to settle with that, analyze what the season might look like, have some predictions, and uh, again, maybe get some biggest plays in from Dave. So I'm going to go around the room as if you have any thoughts, any time uh, as we wrap this up. So I uh, would love to you just if you had one takeaway, one thought, one Great thing from today's podcast. So, Josh, if you have one summary, one takeaway, what was uh, what'd you have from tonight? My biggest takeaway from tonight is that Russ is totally lowballing himself to try to get on a great team for Wiffle by valuing himself is like not super 100%. low. Yeah, all of my limbs are like falling off too, and I don't, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to hit the ball this year. So you're the one guy. Don't who draft can, me for less than who can encounter pneumonia bucks. and not contract pneumonia. <laughs> Russ, what is your biggest takeaway from tonight? My biggest takeaway is always just the fact that I don't take what's happening currently for granted. Whenever I I mention Wiffle to anybody, it it evolves into like a 20 minute conversation because they're legitimately fascinated about what we do here and so as i'm looking around studio h with the you know the the wood signs and the you know the scoreboard behind me and and the the freaking mics with the wiffle league logo on them <laughs> I, I i'm just so i feel so lucky to just have these people in my life and that we can be knuckleheads you know in the middle of a field for a couple months in the summer and do it all over again the following year so I'm happy to be here, and I'm looking forward to what 2018 is going to bring. Well said. Jeez, Rich, if you only did that for your speech, we would all <laughs> love you. <laughs> JF, any takeaways for tonight? Yeah, my biggest takeaway is Luke Pollard just signed on to the <laughs> Facebook Live, and he said, let's hurry up. i got to put Russ's kids to bed. <laughs> That's how you drop the mic right there. <laughs> hey, uh, producer just, uh, Jason, do you have anything? Uh, any takeaways for tonight? I may have just realized. Uh, can we hear me? Yeah, yeah. yeah you're good. that we haven't been recording at all. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, what button did I forget to click? <laughs> no, I, th- I think we did all right tonight. And I think I just also just realized that we may spend more time sitting here doing a podcast than we do actually playing. But uh, 
Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of what makes all this fun is uh, taking everything over the top, and I love doing it. I can't wait for 2018 here. Can't get hurt sitting in a chair. Uh, debatable. <laughs> you should have seen these stink bugs attacking me during the... <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Uh, yeah. This flew into my mouth. This, is de this, <laughs> oh my is, this has definitely been a test to see how long we can carry one of these podcasts, and it's been a pleasure being in the studio with all of you tonight. Uh, and my Great job, Lance. My biggest takeaway is, of course, that Dave Leap is a slimy, slimy captain and not to be trusted. <laughs> He's very greasy, that Those drillers driller. are, yeah, that's, that's a lubed-up captain right there, all hey pun intended. So, uh, yeah, that's all I got for now. So, again, thank you all, whomever stuck with us for this long uh, extended draft preview podcast, and we will catch you next time after the draft has been concluded on episode 25. So until then, signing off, this is your host, Chris Lazzarini, at Studio H for the Wiffle League podcast. Wiffle League Radio. Good night. Oh, yeah.